We have so many sharp listeners and viewers to my podcasts and videos and books and articles. I couldn't do this podcast, couldn't do this without them. The other, the other day, no, this morning I got an email from one of our listeners saying some very, very nice things about me. And then say, Colin, do you know of anybody else who knows this stuff better than you do? The answer is, oh yeah, I know a lot of people who know this stuff better than I do. A lot of people have a sharper point of view. A lot of people, they're just as observant. They connect the dots just as well. They might not have a podcast or a video, but I think there's a lot of people in this country who see the secrecy surrounding all this black crime and violence. They see the secrecy and surrounding the denial, deceit, and delusion. And it really makes them keep their... Their, their eyes open and their ears open and really really think about what's going on out there and how how damaging it is how dangerous it is I mean I can name three right now I'll name three really three, it's really 300 I mean so I hang so uh, on the over the weekend I usually spend time with a group of guys sometimes lovely ladies we and we, we call them the Brex Mill crew. We sit around, smoke cigars. There are at least three guys, three people in that crew who fit the description I just gave of people who know this stuff better than me. At least certain parts, at least certain parts of it. I'm thinking about True to Roof. I'm thinking about Dallas. I'm thinking about the Doctor of Love. And then, if you want to really break open that universe of all the people who know this stuff on a more granular level but really, really know it. I think about every cop I've ever met in this country. I think about all the EMT drivers. I think about the bus drivers. I think about the battered teachers. Every single one of these people they, they see exactly what's going on. They see how widespread it is. And every once in, and if my work does anything for those guys, it just helps them realize that this is not just happening in their lives. It's happening all over the damn country. And once they see that, it's Katie Bar the door. So many good cops are on this platform. Anyway, let's, uh, let's start off with a letter from one of our sharper more supportive viewers. Hey, Colin. Great podcast today. Glad you are back from your excursion. Since I am an avid fan of your daily podcasts, the repeat podcasts were a bit of a disappointment. Have you and your crew found a new location to meet on your Friday night hangouts? If so, let me know. I'd like to meet you guys. And you sound like great Americans. And uh, great. Yeah, everybody knows. If you're in this neck of the woods... You are welcome to join us. We just sit around in beach chairs, whether it's in whether it's in an industrial space with the great Willie Shields or whether it's down by the river or whether it's here or there. We, we've been moving around a little bit lately. And so uh, I usually just let people know on Thursday or Friday. So if you're up here, text me. My phone number is easy to find. Six, well, I'll give it to you now. 619-379-6156. We welcome lots of new folks. 
Anyway, so I was I was focused on that letter in the second part of the letter where he talked about the repeat podcasts. I was a little puzzled by that because we don't do repeat podcasts very, very rarely. Um, I think I did a full repeat podcast. I think we've done two of those this year so far. So that's two out of a couple of hundred. I think one was just, I wasn't feeling well. So rather than do no podcast, I just went and did a best, got it, grabbed an old one and stuck it in there. Um, the second one was, I think I had an equipment malfunction and I was unable to record the podcast. Other than that, we do a new podcast here Monday through Friday every day, including holidays, including this Thanksgiving. So what I think the guy was talking about was... Before I, about five, six, uh, last week, I, I, took, I didn't take any time. I mean, I, I don't want to say I took time off because I was doing podcasts in Washington, D.C. and videos down there, too. But before I did, I did a podcast and about half of the podcast was an interview with Marlon Newburn. So I don't consider that a repeat to grab something from the past and put it on there. That is just as is probably even more important today than it was when we recorded it when Marlon was alive five years ago. So we don't do a repeat. And I mean, I guess the biggest reason we don't do repeats is there's too much material out there. We don't have to do repeats. No, the challenge here is whittling down the material. The challenge here is presenting all these stories maybe five, six, seven a day in a way that kind of illuminates how big of a problem this is, not just a tiny little problem in that tiny little town where the people involved might not even be aware of what they are a part of. We're going to see a lot of that on this podcast today. So we don't do repeat podcasts, though I understand somebody thinking at times they may sound like repeats because that's the big secret of this podcast I think it might be the secret of a lot of different shows out there. I mean, I'm even talking about the big guys, the Rushes, the Michael Savages, the Sean Hannity's. They're doing the same same kind of material every day, but you just have to use different examples. And But you're really telling the same story every day. That's what we do here. So for you new people on the show, this is on this podcast, this is Colin Flaherty. I'm the author of Don't Make the Black Kids Angry. Available at Smashwords.com, not Amazon. Guess why? Though we'll, we'll be on Amazon soon. And also, I'm the author of White Girl Bleed a Lot, which I just put out on an audio book that a lot of people are getting a kick out of. And so I, th- I think people who listen to this podcast religiously understand that the same stuff keeps happening over and over again. Not just the crime, not just the violence, not just the murders, the rapes, the robberies, but also the enormous level of denial, deceit, and delusion we hear on the media every day. Most of it sounds kind of like this. And who, whose whole philosophy was that in 2020, you got to take the racism fight to the present. You got to let voters know you are a vote 
either in support of racist policies or in support of a racist candidate. Is it fair? Is it effective? What do you think? Let me first say it's accurate, and you have to call a thing a thing. And I think that's part of the reason why we got here, because in 2015, when he kicked off his campaign with a bunch of racist rhetoric, there was a, a, a hesitancy to call it out. The first two years of his presidency, when he introduced ridiculous uh, white supremacist policy and would follow that up with additional racist rhetoric and would have an echo chamber of people repeating these things, we didn't call a thing a thing then. So I feel like now, finally, we're here. And look, I understand that there may be some people who get tired of hearing about it. You know, kind of tough luck, because there are a lot of people who live it and endure it every day for decades and centuries who get tired of experiencing it. And so I think a good rule of thumb is if you are not a person of color and millions of people of color across this country is saying a thing or a person is racist, it's really not your place to say that it isn't. I mean, that's his representative of the greatest lie of our generation, the biggest hoax of our lifetimes, than anything I've heard for a while. But we could have 50, we could have 100 different sound bites in there from big time mainstream legacy media where people are just repeating these fairy tales as if somehow they are true. You'll notice there's never any pushback. Never. I mean, what would your life be like if from your the earliest memories, nobody ever disagreed with you on one topic? Say it was, I don't know, football. What if you were taught a certain thing about football and you and one but the most important thing you could be taught is once you learn a little bit about it or once you start offering your observations about it, nobody is ever going to correct you. What would the quality of your football observations be? They would be very poor because you would sound like a jackass. Well, that's what the fellas and lovely ladies go through because they're just used to saying things about race that nobody ever pushes back on them. And when they do get pushed back, and the rare times they do get a pushback, all they can do is, you know, open their eyes, put their hands up in the air, and start making ad hominem attacks, screaming, you're a bad person, you're a dumb person, you should be removed from the public square, whether that's YouTube or Facebook or Patreon. That's all they have. All they have because they've never been, had to, they've never had to like submit their views in any kind of arena where they are challenged. And so the fairy tales grow, the lies grow, the greatest lie of our generation spreads. And that's what we do on this podcast. We expose the greatest lie of our generation. And we do it with facts, we do it with information. Never sitting here saying, Every once in a while, I say in my mind, you know, I, I make a statement and I say, do I really have to put a video in there to show that <laughs> every time and 99 times out of 100, I'll say, yes, I do. Because, you know, if I'm going to go around telling, talking about the greatest lie of our generation, that's a big, that's a big claim. It's all really on me to go overboard to show that this claim is true and to demonstrate how true this claim is in a million different ways on a million different days. But on that one time out of a hundred where I just say, no, I've already I've already said that a hundred times. I mean, why do I have to say it again? Why do I have to document that again? Like I'm thinking of the mass thing about mass shooters. 75% of mass shooters in this country are black. And it could be as high as 90% if you say three or more people getting shot. 
that's a mesh. If you say that, that's up. That's like 85, 90%. If you say four or more, the New York Times says that's anywhere from 70 to 75%. So we, we, we talk, I mean, we mention that weekly. And I, I mentioned it on Twitter. But when I mention it on Twitter now, I never, I never source it. I'll just say, yeah, three quarters of mass shooters are black. Because I always like to try to suck the people in to tell me that, no, Colin, you got that wrong. You know, 99% of those kids are white, Colin. You got that all wrong, Colin. I let them, I suck them in. I let all their buddies come in to tell them, you know, to say what a genius that dude is, what an idiot I am. Then I offer to let those guys win a lot of money from me, $10 a person. We can bet on it. Then all of a sudden, you can hear a little bit of silence on the other end of the Twitter stream. And they never come back and say, sure, Colin, I'll bet you 10 bucks on that. Sure. You can't, you know, you can't document that, Colin. <laughs> okay. 10 bucks. New York Times. You owe me 10 bucks. Nobody ever pays me. That's why we try to keep everything fresh here. In the last couple of days, every once in a while, I'll reach back two weeks or even two months. But most of the times, it's just stuff happening right now. Because if this stuff is happening as big and as bad and as often as I say so, well, it shouldn't really be that hard of a task to come up with fresh examples of it, right? I mean, just, okay, just the other day. So Larry Elder put out a tweet yesterday talking about hate crimes in New York City, how they jumped up 75 to 68% last year. Most And everybody's going, Larry was going, well, where, why is there no attention to that? And he said quite correctly, it's because this jump in hate crimes is because it's directed at Jewish people and almost every single perpetrator that I've seen, 99% of them are black. He says that's why the people in the newspapers and TV up in New York aren't overly eager to talk about it. So as soon as I said that yesterday, as soon as I retweeted that Larry's thing, I must have gotten 20 people to come in and say, Hey, Colin, what about the Jews? What about the Jews, Colin? I said, Hey, if you can show me some people in yarmulkes going around clonking people on the head let me know but the people were saying no in those cases calling those hate crimes in new york city i don't use that expression hate crimes by the way and those crimes up in new york city i guarantee you the jewish people provoked them i said great hey happy to hear it give me some examples then all of a sudden somebody goes okay Colin, i got an example it was like 30 years old from that episode and what they said wasn't even true but they talked about that episode what was that i forget that it slipped out of my mind the name of that episode in in one of the chocolate neighborhoods of New York City where uh, a Jewish guy hit a black child. He died. They brought ambulance, came to the scene, took away a Jewish person, but not a black person. Total mis misreporting of what actually happened. And then there followed a couple of days of riots where at least one Jewish person died. Al Sharpton was on the scene leading the violence. So, but, every, but all I wanted to know, I just said all I wanted to see was the facts. I just want to see the facts. Jewish people are provoking black people. Okay, I'm open to it. Show me, that's all. But I, that's what I said, but I didn't really believe that. What I believe is that the fellas are attacking the Jewish people in up in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg, because that's part of their preferred lifestyle. It's what they like to do. 
and I've documented that so many times, probably more than anybody, Jewish or non-Jewish, in the whole damn world. Always a little disappointed when the so-called Jewish leaders up in that area take great pains to remind people this is not a racial thing. It's just a coincidence that the black people are preying on Jewish people in Brooklyn. But I'm also disappointed when anybody would come into our platform and try to get away with just saying something without giving us a link or a fact. And saying, well, Colin, uh, 500 years ago, the Jewish people did this and that to black people, and that's why the black people are all angry. Come on, you got to do better than that, okay? You're not a Whoever people who say that, they're not historians. They're not historians any more than the fellas are historians that go around talking about four billion years of uh, white racism and black victimization. But everybody's kind of clued into the fact that you can say certain things about certain topics about the fellas and there will be no pushback. So I was thinking about that email today about the guy who was talking about repeat podcasts were a bit of a disappointment when we don't do repeat podcasts, except in extremely rare circumstances. I was thinking about that because all the stories here you're going to hear in a minute they all sound familiar. Yeah, we've done them all. Except now the story's being done in a different city and everybody's looking at us, looking at themselves going, wow, this is an amazing story and it must only happen in Seattle. It must only happen in Philadelphia when the big contribution of this channel, I think, is to present a, a broad picture of how the fellas are are out of control with crime and violence and many, many different facets, different ways all over the country. You know, I think one of the big weakness that every reporter has, and I, I remember, I think I saw a TV show on this. I've, I think I've seen the Mary Tyler Moore show once in my life. And this was what it was. They hired a new sportscaster. He looked like he had had it all down. He had great looks, great delivery, knew a lot about sports, but he loved swimming. So his first broadcast and the first couple broadcasts, all he did was talk about swim meets and the results and the drama and, and everybody in the control room was going, hey, why is that guy focused on swimming? Nobody really cares about swimming. So I have to confess, I have my topics like that too, where I can geek out on something knowing that maybe I might be the only one who actually really even cares about it. I mean, I could geek out on the numbers all day long, geek out about how bad the numbers are. How black crime versus white crime is three times, five times, ten times, a thousand times greater. And that's just with the numbers that we have in place right now. And the numbers we have in place right now just completely underreport the crime and violence the fellas are involved in. It's not hard to see why. I mean, just yesterday when we uh, we, 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 we did a video we did on this podcast we were talking, we, I, had a, I reproduced a headline from the New York Times where the New York Times was talking about how black women hesitate to report black men for rape. And I reminded people we've done that story a whole bunch of times, not just from the New York Times, but from the Huffington Post, from the Grio, and other places where they're talking about how black women don't report, and, and MSNBC, how black women don't report crime against men, black men. Because, according to the Huffington Post, black women are trained at an early age to protect the race at all costs. If you get raped and you don't report it, if you see somebody getting raped and you don't report it because you want to report, you don't want to get the black fella in trouble, 
isn't that indicative of this incredible culture of denial, deceit, and delusion surrounding black crime and violence in the hood? And what does that do to the numbers? What do the Bronx juries do to the numbers? What happens to the numbers when we have a professor at Georgetown University coming on and doing a big commentary in the Washington Post, Paul Dunbar, Paul Dunbar, who says, if you're a black person on a jury, and yeah, if you're black, you definitely want to be on a jury. You do not have to vote to convict a fella if you think he's, if you think racism is the reason that he's sitting in that defendant box. Oh no, you don't have to do that. We've done tons of stories about Bronx juries, about people on video getting acquitted by a Bronx jury. I mean, we had like four, we, we did a video a, month, a couple of weeks ago and a, and a podcast on this on four cases, one week. I mean, there was no doubt about, the, there were at least two murders in there and they were just both plainly murders. Both guys walked out guilty as hell, free as a bird. Both black guys killed, one, they, they killed a white guy and one of them killed an Asian guy. So the numbers are so ridiculously high, but even as high as they are, we have to multi start multiplying the numbers that we know. So I could geek out on that all day long. I could also geek out on violence in schools because there's so much of it, so easy to see. And I love even and and I love the way that even though we see the videos from the kids, I love it when the principals and the superintendents come out, as we saw just the other day, come out and said, no, this is being exaggerated. Most of the kids in our school behave and they want to do this and they want to learn and do that. Then you look at, you know, the stats from their school and nobody's reading at a, at a you know, nobody's <laughs> reading above a third grade level and the whole damn school. I can geek out on schools all day long. Here's a video I just saw. This is just in the news in Philly the other day. I mean, another story about teachers under attack. Now, the weird thing about the numbers in education, there's probably nothing that is studied or is subject to more data collection and analysis than what happens inside of our schools. I mean, how many times have we heard the numbers just as recently as this, you know, a couple of days ago in the Atlantic magazine where some one of their big shot writers reminded us all it was because of white racism that black students are expelled and suspended way more than white people. And everybody knows that's only because of white racism and not because of black dysfunction leading to violence. Well, that's a fairy tale. That's just part of the greatest lie of our generation. And so they have all the numbers on the stuff in schools, except... They don't, I don't think they collect them. And if they collect them, they keep them locked away in some vault way down at the you know, Board of Education headquarters where nobody gets to see them or hear about them. They don't collect the numbers on the number of, on the break, racial breakdown when students are attacking teachers. Just got my first Christmas card in the mail the other day from a teacher, teacher from the Baltimore area. She was a person I talked to at length about her experience in Baltimore and everything we say here, you know, she's one of these people that'll say, oh yeah, Colin, you're telling, yeah, everything you said is true except one, except for one thing. It's way worse than what you say it is. This is the person that was in the school, got the whole dose of it, the abuse, the violence, the black principal telling her it's her fault that she can't keep control of her students. The whole damn 
thing. And so you're going to hear. So let's get to this story from Philly. I know it's like second verse, same as the first. And no one's going to talk about the 800 pound fella in the room. We've shown you fights in hallways and brawls broken up by teachers. Have you been assaulted? Yes, twice. This teacher is among hundreds who answered yes to that question. The NBC10 investigators conducted a survey of Philadelphia school teachers. We received more than 500 responses. We're concealing the identity of educators we spoke with because they fear school district retaliation. I've seen lots of students as young as six and seven years old throw chairs, throw furniture. We had. Um, an incident in another school where they threw feces at a teacher. Of the teachers who answered our survey, 42% of them told us they've been physically assaulted by a student. 38% told us they don't believe their school is well protected against violence, whether it be external or internal. One teacher wrote, I've been punched, kicked and scratched. Another described being hit by a metal trash can. Some wrote about being injured by students, including my neck was sprained and I was punched in the stomach by a student when I was seven months pregnant. There's clearly something going on that needs to be attended to. We showed our survey results to educational psychology professor Eric Anderman. He studies violence against teachers. It looked to me like your elementary teachers are the ones who are um, feel the least safe and feel like they see the most violence, which that surprised me. State safe school records show in the last five full school years, 785 incidents of aggravated assault on school staff. If you want people to learn, you've got to get them to focus. These are distractions from focusing. A lot of it is disciplinary. There's no consequences. Even the littlest kid can, and I've seen it many times, can destroy a classroom, overturn desks and chairs, interrupt instruction for long periods of time, and there's really no consequence. Records show last year more than 11,700 out-of-school suspensions for violence, but there were zero expulsions in the Philly School District. In the real world, if you go out and you carry out some of these actions that they're doing, you will go to jail. When we told Philadelphia School Superintendent William Height what teachers told us about safety concerns, he said he wasn't surprised. We're a large school district with a lot of issues that children come to us with um, significant challenges and, and we are training individuals to deal with those things. We asked to schedule time with Height to discuss our survey results. He declined, so we met up with him after a school board meeting. Many individuals are concerned about uh, safety and they're concerned about the health and welfare of their students. He said the district's own survey showed staff bothered by school safety. When we brought up teachers wanting more student discipline after assaults, Height had enough. They mentioned the fact that there's not discipline. I gotta take off. I never expected violence would be part of my job. Were you able to teach properly in an environment like that? No. No. There was little, little education went on when those occurrences occurred. For the investigators, I'm Mitch Blocker, NBC 10 News. And we asked again after the school board meeting for time to speak with Dr. Height more specifically about what the district is doing to combat violence against teachers. Through a spokesperson, he again declined. You know, when you do talk to people, educators that are that are in full on denial, deceit, delusion mode, they usually go to the the, the, the first reaction of people like that is A, it's not happening. B, here's why it's happening. A, it's not happening. B, here's why it's happening in the same breath. That's what we got out of that superintendent there in Philadelphia. 
it's not happening. Most of the kids here want to go to school and, you know, become astronauts. But, you know, a couple people just spoil it for the rest of us. That kind of fairy tale. The culture of violence, the culture of anti-intellectualism, the culture of scorn for everything they consider white is part of the DNA in these schools. And they are not trying to hide it. No, this is like something they would talk about all day and night. They geek out on this all night and day at these conferences. They geek out about it at their school board meetings. They geek out about it at their teachers' meetings. What are we going to do about those kids that are beating the hell out of the teachers? Well, what we're going to do is create a culture and we're going to fix the kid. We're going to prevent the kids from beating up the teachers. Well, how long is that going to take? About 10 years. Has it ever worked before? No, but we're geniuses here. We're smarter than everybody else. And so when we're done, we're not going to, this will all be fixed. And we're supposed to sit there and just listen to that little fairy tale as if it has even one little grain of truth in it when everybody listening to it knows it does not. How about bus drivers? I could geek out on bus drivers and public transportation people all day long. Bunch of crazy stuff happening up in New York City right now. On the subways. Lots of violence. Lots of people getting attacked on the trains. A lot of people getting attacked, attacked leaving the trains. A lot of people getting attacked waiting for the trains. It's a thing in New York City on the subway now. The fellas have just decided that you know, white people shouldn't be in their world. And when white people enter their world with their whiteness, there's only could be only one response. That is violence. So now we go out to Seattle. I think the black population of Seattle is 7%. And here's a, here's a couple of minutes story that they just did in Seattle just the other night. Headline, Metro drivers fear death is the only thing that will lead to safety upgrades. So the safety upgrade they're talking about is encasing the drivers in these like plastic cages to keep them away from the drivers. Of course, the fella in charge of that system, he comes and says, no, no, that's just going to create, uh, you know, it's going to you know, remove the drivers from establishing a relationship with the riders all the time. During this report, you're going to see and hear about all these attacks on drivers, lots of them supported by video. And of all the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of nasty bits of violence we capture on video, there was only one guy, one white guy, featured in that. And all he did was shout a few bad things and fake a punch at the bus driver. No, the other people weren't faking punches. And so we've done podcasts with bus drivers. We've talked to bus drivers. We've done lots and lots of bus stories in Milwaukee and here, Baltimore here and there and everywhere. And the bus drivers will tell you driving a bus th in through the hood is hell. They don't want to do it. They'll take their seniority as soon as they can and get a less desirable schedule for time in order to get out of that hood as fast as they can. Now we go up to Seattle where for four minutes the, the reporters here were able to ignore the 800 pound fella in the room. But I got the feeling if this report went on for four minutes and 30 seconds, it would, maybe, they, maybe that would have been too long to ignore the 800-pound fella. King County Metro is taking action after Cairo 7 first exposed dozens of violent attacks against bus drivers. But are their efforts enough? They, they don't seem to understand 
how important this is. Cairo 7 investigates the ongoing battle over bus safety. The video is just awful, and our reports brought back memories for bus operators attacked on the job. And that includes a woman who told our Amy Clancy she is frustrated Metro hasn't done more 10 years after she was assaulted on the job. He knocked me out. I still have a great big scar on the inside of my lip. Catherine Beatty has no memory of the moments after she was struck multiple times while driving a Metro bus on International Boulevard in Tukwila just after midnight in January of 2010. I was knocked unconscious, so I guess I was kind of going in and out. I feel the pain in my head from the concussion. Cairo 7 was in court when her 14-year-old attacker was sentenced to a year in juvenile detention. Sorry for assaulting could you look at me when you say that? That's all I need. Sorry for assaulting. Thank you. On that day, Beatty asked Cairo 7 to hide her identity. <laughs> but after seeing our recent investigations about the ongoing violence against Metro bus drivers and passengers, Beatty contacted Cairo 7 and said she has been asking King County for years to increase driver safety. You've been fighting this fight for how long? Ever since the, it happened, 10 years. And it has not resulted in any kind of shield for the drivers? No. How do you feel about that? I want to say it angers me, but I think it goes beyond anger. They don't seem to understand how important this is. Driver shields have been installed in buses nationwide and are currently being tested by Pierce Transit. In our earlier reports, Metro Deputy General Manager Terry White told Cairo 7 that King County has been exploring the idea for 10 years, but that none of the options tested so far have been good enough. We don't want to just put something in, find out we did the wrong thing, and now we've, we've costed the system, and we got to pull it out. But had Metro installed shields after Beatty's attack, the drivers in these surveillance videos might have had a wall of protection between them and their attackers. And driver Deloy Dupuis might not have been shot at point-blank range while driving through downtown Seattle in August of 2013. Went through my cheek and uh, through my arm and then he started uh, shooting and I was bobbing and weaving as much as you can with the seatbelt on and screaming no, no, no. That shooting prompted renewed calls for some sort of shield or plexiglass cage to protect Metro drivers, going all the way to the top of King County government. There's been a, a discussion over the years about the relative merits of having some kind of encasement around the drivers. However, Executive Dow Constantine said at the time that drivers didn't want them. Because in some cases, the driver wants to be able to move quickly. After Beatty's 2010 assault, Metro did install 30 test shields, and 300 drivers then filled out surveys. According to the transit union, most of them did not want to be enclosed. A change in the relationship between the operator and the passengers that we thought would cause more problems, not solve problems. However, since then, surveillance cameras have now been installed on more than 90% of King County's buses, recording dozens of assaults against drivers within the past two years, as a Cairo 7 investigation revealed. According to King County records, in the past 10 years, nearly 230 assault-related injury claims have been filed against Metro by drivers, leading to payouts of more than $2.5 million.
And now, the driver's union does support the installation of shields, according to President Ken Price. You're in that position, vulnerable, and you have no protection. It's the realities of what driving a bus in Seattle has become. The barrier is the safest way to put a plexiglass shield in front of the operator and the assailant. Metro denied Cairo 7's request for an interview for this story. But just within the last few days, a spokesperson shared a statement that appears to signal a change since our September investigation. His email states, we've heard the clear request from leadership of our labor partners that they would like Metro to install operator screens throughout our system. So in response, Metro is creating a driver screen program to explore options, assess costs and impacts on drivers and passengers. However, there is no timeline for the project. Did you think our stories were unfair in any way? No. In fact, I don't think they went far enough. For longtime Metro driver and supervisor Kathy Bellapani, promises without action are empty because she believes the fatal shooting of Mark McLaughlin in 1998, the beating of Beatty in 2010, the shooting of Dupuy three years later, and the dozens of assaults captured on surveillance cameras should have made driver safety a priority long before Cairo 7's investigation. Metro and King County think it's bad PR to have those shields. It's more important that they look good than to protect our operators. How do you feel about that? It makes me really angry. What do you think it's going to take for change to be made, possibly the addition of shields? I hate to say this, but I think it's going to take a video of somebody being killed. A few minutes ago, I was talking about our Brex Mill crew and how we now we move around Friday to Friday between a couple of different places and we all meet and smoke cigars and solve all of the world's problems. Well, trying to figure out how many people are on this platform is kind of the same thing as us moving around because there are a lot of a lot of people posting my videos all over the damn place. We got a bunch of people posting them at BitChute. We got a lot of people putting up videos over at uh, over at YouTube. Um, the great Dolomite has been kicked off YouTube three or four times. He keeps going back on. But we've got people over there that have posted a lot of videos that keep getting hits. But they don't post them there anymore. I don't know why they stopped. But the channels are st still up. These channels are easy to find. The channels are still up and the, the you know the meter's still running. Lots and lots of views. Ditto on my Facebook. I hardly ever post on Facebook anymore after the last notice that basically said, uh, yeah, we're getting ready to kick you off, Colin. I didn't want to get kicked off Facebook. I'll tell you, well, actually, I don't want to get kicked off Facebook because I've got 25,000 followers there and I can talk to all 25,000 at once if I advertise on Facebook and I don't want to lose that. So I don't want to get kicked off Facebook. But those Facebook, my old videos at Facebook, they just keep churning and churning. Ditto for Twitter. Man, yesterday, on, I mean, last week on Twitter, we had two videos that got three quarters of a million views. And all these old, all these Twitter videos I put up, they get great views. So the reason I mentioned how big this platform is, how we get millions of views and audio, a, a, a month, is because it's a big platform. And a lot of people talk about this stuff. 
And so a lot of people take this, you know, take their smartphone out to the lunchroom or out to their cars at lunch and they listen to it. And the guy in the car next to the car over goes, hey, man, what do you listen to? I get those emails every day. And so whenever I do something about teachers or bus drivers, in the back of my mind, I'm always going, okay, we're very explicit here based on what we've talked to about all the bus drivers we talked to, all the videos we've seen from teachers and bus drivers. Can't we get at least one teacher, one bus driver to send me an email, to leave a comment saying, hey, Colin, you got that all wrong. I live in Memphis, Tennessee, and the buses here are fantastic. The fellas never attack the bus drivers. They never threaten them. I mean, for every one attack, there's 50 people getting threatened. 50 things that never ha never rise to the level of calling your supervisors that are just nasty business. It's a black thing. You never get one teacher, one bus driver, one cop, not even one to say, Colin, you got it all wrong. I mean, white people do it too, Colin. Don't you know that? I caught a guy jaywalking three years ago. He was white. There, Colin. There. I shut you down, didn't I? I mean, we can't get one? Come on. Don't you guys have any friends that are cops and teachers or bus drivers that can that you can even you could even like tell me what they I never even gotten that. I never even had anybody said, hey, Colin, I listen to your uh, videos and watch your listen to your audio uh, podcast all the time. Except my friend's been teaching in public schools for the last 35 years. And he says the fellas are just angels. They appreciate the fact that education is going to be the only way they get out of the ghetto and become NASA astronauts. They appreciate that. They love learning. They love reading. They love reading about things other than slavery and racial resentment. Not one of those. Instead, we keep getting stories like this out of Plano. Headline, suspect in Allen High football players slaying, killing, were party crashers who got kicked out of a Plano Airbnb party. So a bunch of fellas in Plano, Texas, having a big party at an Airbnb house that they rented under false circumstances. They're sitting there partying, doing whatever the hell they were doing. A couple of, these were, I think, mostly, mostly black people in the party. A couple of black, a couple of older black guys who were on the football team. They come in and they said, hey, we're not invited, but could we have, you know, we heard you have some free stuff here that we would like to participate in. They said, no, you're not invited. You got to leave. They went out, got a gun, started shooting people at the party. One guy did. How many times have we heard that at an Airbnb? How many times recently have we heard that? At an Airbnb. I'm losing count. A lot. Yet I just sit here going, okay, I'm waiting for the Airbnb owners or users or neighbors to come in and say, yeah, Con, had a big Airbnb party out here the other day, a bunch of white kids, and uh, they shot the place up and ruined the house and destroyed and threatened the neighbors. Haven't gotten one of those yet. Over the last five years, we've had over 150 million views on my videos. 150 million. And of all those people watching those videos, many watch more than one, of course, all those millions of people that have been exposed to the stuff on this channel, nobody's going to come and write me an email going, hey, Colin, you know, you got that Airbnb thing wrong. What happened to that? You know, people are not shy about coming at me if they think I'm wrong. That's, and the, but the, and the one thing people, the fellas come at me the strongest, the hardest 
is on the mass shooting thing. That's the one thing they just can't get their minds around. And then when I tell them that three quarters of the people who do the shootings are black, that's when they go do a deep dive into the research. And that's when they come back saying, yeah, Colin, but if you will basically eliminate all, all black people from your research, that means 90% of the mass shooters are white. <laughs> basically, it's what they say. Big article in the Philadelphia paper the other day said, yeah, mass shootings are vastly underreported in Philadelphia. Now, they're not playing games with categorizing these different kinds of mass shootings. They're just saying, no, if you've got a gun and you shoot three people, you shoot four people, that's a mass shooting. Vastly underreported in Philadelphia. Another story said they have one, one every 11 days. It's probably more than that now. Boy, I just finished listening to a segment that I heard yesterday on my car radio on the show called 1A. For, I think it stands for First Amendment, the idea of being freedom of speech, that the people at NPR are so proud of, you know, how they're willing to talk about anything. You know, they don't give a damn. That's how brave they are. When everybody knows that the conversations on NPR are very, very tightly restricted into this tiny little box of hyper-liberal views. That's who the hosts are. That's who the guests are. And anybody outside of the box is scorned and ridiculed but never asked to be a guest on the show. Uh, anyway, so listening to we're gonna do a we're gonna do a fuller story about this tomorrow. I got one segment out of that where they're talking about guns, where this guy from Tennessee declares that you know basically everything we know about guns and what John Lott says, where people have guns, they are safer. This guy says, oh no, no, that ain't true. No, that ain't true. No, that's not true. No, none of that's true. And he blames it all on white people. He actually says something about like white people have these fairy tales in their head that they're in danger from black crime and violence and that's why so many people have guns unnecessarily so i got some cops working on that segment right now and as soon as they get back to me with some emails um i think they're listening both of those guys are listening to this podcast right now i will play that segment and read their read their uh responses and they can give us a little bit of reality to it but one of the things they did say is that, oh, Colin, you know, people never use guns for self-defense. That's just a myth. It's a myth put out by the NRA, Colin. Then I come to this story. I even forget where it's from, but the headline, you can look it up if you want. Here's the headline. Punch is thrown after cell phone dispute at local restaurant. Boy, that's really kind of, <laughs> you hear the story. Think about that headline. Think about how disingenuous that headline is when you hear the story. So the story is a guy, a veteran, an older guy with his wife and some of his family are in a restaurant. A, 20, a white guy, a 21-year-old fella walks into the restaurant, walks up to this guy out of nowhere and goes, Hey, man, can I use your cell phone to make a call? So the white guy goes, Sure. What's the number? I'll dial it. You can talk to him on my and you can talk to it on my speaker, but I'm going to hold the phone. So they take care. I don't know if the phone call was completed successfully. I don't know what was going on, but people who listen to this platform know that you're being sized up on some level. If for no other reason, than you know, let me use your phone. I'm going to grab it and I'm going to uh, run away with it and get a hundred bucks for it down in the hood. Anyway, so the guy, the fella leaves, the 21-year-old fella leaves. He comes back with his brother. And then he starts accusing the guy of being racist for not letting him have 
his, his cell phone. And he and his brother start punching the guy's wife. And they punch the guy. He goes down, separates his shoulder. He has a gun. He pulls his gun out, aims it at one of the fellas and saying, you're not going anywhere. His, other, his brother ran away. They're still looking for him. But they took that gun out and pointed it at him. And that ended that dispute right then, right there. And now we got the guys on NPR saying, no, white guys don't need guns. White people are not targets of black hostility and violence. That's just something Colin Flaherty makes up on his back porch while he's smoking cigars. Man, I wish that were true. Because then you know what I would do then? I'd go back to playing golf with rich people. Yeah, that's what I would, that's what I would do. Oh, man, how many stories have we seen about sexual assault and murder in parking garages? All I can say about this one is here's one more. Tanya, the suspect will face a judge later on today. Police say he's confessed and he has a criminal history. This morning, 26-year-old Donald Thurman is charged with first-degree murder and sexual assault. Police say Thurman, currently on parole for armed robbery, has no connection to UIC and did not know Ruth George, the 19-year-old sophomore found strangled to death in the back seat of her family's car in this UIC parking garage. Police say surveillance video shows Thurman early Saturday morning following George into the garage and then leaving a half hour later. Thurman allegedly confessed after being arrested Sunday morning at the nearby Harrison and Halstead Blue Line stop. Investigators say they had staked out that location after tracking his travel patterns with the help of nearby cameras. Last night, dozens of people gathered at the place where George was killed, remembering the honor student who dreamed of becoming a health professional. It's very shocking because I don't really hear things that often happening at this campus, but like I said, this is Chicago. The George family has asked for privacy, but Ruth's sister posted on Facebook that she was the light of the family. And the exact same thing happened in Cincinnati on the exact same day, like a day or two ago, except the woman was not murdered. Now this is so, this is one of these stories that if you research that story based on the headline, I'll, I'll give you the headline again. Man charged with murder, sex assault of University of Illinois Chicago student Ruth George to appear in court. Of course, the guy has a long history of crime, violence, guns, guns, drugs, money, bitches, and murder. Long history of that. Got sentenced to six years. Just got out two after doing two years a few months ago. Now he's back on the street killing this girl from India. Her parents are from India. But I couldn't help but think of that thing we were talking about yesterday, right? In the New York Times, they ran the story a month ago. A couple of lovely ladies, high school love, high school black girls at a football high school football game they said a couple of students were pissing on them urinating on them new york times is a big op-ed on it a woman a black woman who wrote a wrote a book called the history of white people or something like that she's not down with white people so she writes this book she writes this big op-ed saying yeah the kids who committed them committed this crime of pissing on a black girl they're not white but because, you know, but because that's what white people do all the time, we have to say this example of these kids from India doing that is an example of white racism. So we've done that story so many times, but the first time we did it, we just did it as a reminder of how much black on 
Indian violence there is in this country. A ton of it. Some of it, I'll just say spontaneous. Some of it actually planned where groups of fellas go up from town to town looking in the phone book for Indian names. There's like six names that are Indian names, without a doubt. S-I-N-G-H. Singh is one of them. Patel is another. Find them. Find their house. Scope it out. Bing, bam, boom. You've got the gold. You've got the jewelry because that's what they like to keep in their house. And now we see the reverse happening and not one, one, one person of Indian descent in this country will stand up and go, hey, what's up with all the black violence against people from India? What's up with that? They happen in our businesses, in our stores, in our homes. Happens to our children at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Why are you letting all the, these violent fellows out of prison after two years? You know, not only is it hard to catch a fella, it's hard to it's hard for it's hard to go to j prison. And you get, I mean, you really got to work hard to go to prison. So they got this guy, gave him six years out and two, kills an Indian girl. And that's just supposed to be how the world works in Chicago. You know, in Chicago, it's kind of a thing. Whenever the, one of the fellas gets killed, if he happens to be a member of one of these popular Chicago social clubs, if you have a funeral, it's, it's pretty much a given thing that members from opposing social clubs are going to show up at the funeral with violent intent. That's why the cops, they have uh, motorcades with lots of cop presence. We've seen videos of, of people riding in these motorcades, playing with their guns, laughing at their guns, waiting to use their guns. So that's the thing in Chicago. You know, they direct them, they take certain routes, everybody's protected, the cops are doing, you know, they, you know it's full on. Even then, it still pops up. Down in Oklahoma City, they really haven't figured out that that now is part of their life, too. Evan, Jess, yeah, witnesses saying it was just chaotic. People were running, screaming, and even taking cover behind cars. Now, police say this was a drive-by shooting at a funeral for a suspected gang member. Sky 5 over the scene as those two shooting victims were lying on the ground just moments after being shot. I mean, I'm shocked. I'm, I'm like really shocked right now. I don't know what's going on. That's what Lynn Anderson is thinking after she was told one of those victims is her cousin. I'm just trying to see if they, if they okay. Her cousin was one of many attending a funeral for Donye Robinson, who was shot and killed two weeks ago in Dell City. The young man that was being uh, having the funeral service was suspected to have been in a gang. And because of that, police had officers already on the scene during the funeral. Uh, we did have some gang-related activity here at the funeral, which resulted in a shooting. Those victims' conditions unknown at this time. And I'm just trying to make sure the people that we do know make sure they are right. Witnesses surrounding the area, tearfully looking for answers. That's one of my biggest fears, to go to a funeral and something like this happen. Officers say there were at least two suspects, one leading police on a short chase in this car. We do have one subject in custody that I'm aware of. Now, officers are still looking for at least one more suspect. Now, you might have noticed in that video a lot of people were wearing yellow and blue. I'm told that was Robinson's favorite colors. And now we get this reporter looking into the camera, pretending like this is not a thing. 
and I'm sorry, by the time she got to the end of that story of just not believing anything she says about her reporting on the fellas, she said everybody was dressed in blue and yellow because that was this fella's favorite color. Somebody would have to convince me those are not gang colors. I'm sorry. I just don't believe that reporter. I've come to the conclusion that media collusion is wrapped up in denial and deceit and delusion. It can't be true, come on and get a clue, cause everybody knows white people do it too. I really like to play the knockout game. Or leave your store in total disarray, disarray. Don't hassle me, cause all your stuff is for free. I didn't do nothing anyway. Amazing. Even though I'm 33, I'm just another team. And don't report random argy-bargy that you see on TV. Cause you know through and through, all you're gonna do is make the black kids angry. It's not mob violence, it's just a fight. Fellas blowing off a little steam. Some midnight basketball will be just fine in the middle of our quiet, safe community. Always getting picked on for no reason whatsoever That explains everything now until forever It really doesn't matter what happened to you Cause what they said I did, I didn't do Even though I'm 33, I'm just another team Talk about the violent fellas or the lovely lady Cause you know through and through All you're gonna do is make the black kids angry So now the fellas in Oklahoma City are following their brothers in Chicago and lots of other places where they're turning funerals into just another, just another episode, just another occasion of really nasty black violence wildly out of proportion. And we're all sitting here waiting for the videos of white people doing it too. Here's another story I could geek out on all day long. And the reason why any of us geek out on things is because it's right in front of our face, but we feel that nobody around us is talking about it or will even accept it. I think a lot of you guys listening to this get that experience from your families and your friends when you say, hey, listen, this black crime and violence is wildly out of proportion. A lot of people are in denial, deceit, and delusion about it. And all of a sudden, people's eyes glaze over. They just don't want to hear it. Well, the fact that it's true and everybody's in denial, deceit, and delusion about it makes you want to talk about it even more. So one thing I geek out on here, probably too much, is when somebody's trying to get into their condo building, and a fella comes up and beats the piss out of them and goes into the condo building with their key or with the open door, a place they have no right to be. The reason I geek out on it, you guys know this, is because how many times have we seen in the last couple of years, two years, how many episodes have we seen with a fella and a video camera catching a white person in a real or imagined act of white racism, their favorite pastime, and it all takes place on the, at the door of a condo where somebody's trying to get into that condo without a key 
and everybody knows you do not let anybody into your condo without a key. But everybody, apparently most people don't know the addendum to that. You do not let anybody into your condo without a key, asterisk, unless they are a fella. In which case, they're allowed to go into your condo any damn place they want to go. And so it's weird when you have a story like the one you're going to hear, because that's exactly what happened here. I mean, it's weird. I've never seen any reporter. We've seen dozens of these stories, but I've never seen even one reporter say, uh, yeah, this is the flip side of that national story that consumed our country for an entire month. And afterwards, this is the flip side of what happens when people when you know when you're when you're an older person going into your condo, a fella comes up, beats the piss out of you, all because you know you weren't that eager to give him your stuff, and you weren't that eager to give give him the key to your condo or to let him in without his key. Police want to track down the robber who brutally kicked a man in the face in the Bronx. That attack caught on surveillance video, and Eyewitness News reporter Derek Waller live in the Fordham section. And Derek, this video is kind of tough to watch. Ken, that video is graphic. It shows a man getting punched and kicked in the head repeatedly as he tries to enter his apartment building. That video was just released overnight from the NYPD, and it shows the suspect kicking, kicking that 40-year-old man in the head while he's down on the sidewalk in view of his building's security camera. This happened Sunday, November 10th, around 1.30 in the morning here at East 183rd and Morris Avenue. Police say the man in the video approached the victim from behind pushed him to the ground and began punching and kicking him, leaving lacerations to its head and bruising to his face. The man said to be possibly in his 20s, about 5 foot 10, 180 pounds with a goatee. So if all a lot of the stuff we do here sounds familiar, well, it is. It's familiar because it keeps happening and the lies keep growing around it. So the fact that it happens to me, it's a big deal, but it's something that, I mean, if you clonk somebody over the head, that's not complicated, is it? You clonk somebody over the head, you're going to prison. But now it's all complicated because everybody has a million reasons why A, that person got clonked on the head, and B, why we shouldn't send that person to prison because that's just mass incarceration and that will never have, that will never help that person who did the clonking turn his life around. I mean, this is, I mean, that's the dangerous part, right? The dangerous part is when we just let these people live among us as if they're regular people with regular, a regular and normal set of coping skills, a regular psychological profile, a regular person for whom, you know, robbing, stealing and killing is not actually a part of their everyday life. How could, how could, our, how could our society be more dangerous than having people in positions of authority and power and influence who now believe that is a that is a fact and they're working day and night to make that happen. That's what happened to that girl from India at the University of Illinois, Chicago. That guy should be in prison right now for a lot longer than six years. Instead, he's walking the streets of Chicago looking for pretty little co-eds that he can follow into their parking garage and rape and murder. And no, there is no closure. There is no getting over it. It doesn't get better. Tending it does. It's really an important way not to make the black kids angry. I'll talk to you tomorrow.